0: Happy Sabbath, Advent, Hope. And today, I didn't, I didn't know exactly how many people would be here. I made a hundred handouts. If you didn't get a handout, I encourage you to share with someone who is here. Um, the handouts are pretty important because I've put some information in there that uh, is not in the presentation, just so that um, as you go home, uh, you might be able to use the handout for your own study. Today, my presentation is entitled, Teach a Man to Fish. And actually, although the title may sound like it is a presentation on soul winning, it's actually not. This is a presentation on how to study the Bible more effectively. Now, before we begin, I would like to invite you to bow your heads with me as we have an additional word of prayer. Father in heaven, this morning, we are thankful for a beautiful Sabbath day. I pray that you would bless this opportunity, this time to study together, and may this coming year mark a year that we become better Bible students and thus be empowered to be better Christians and to be better witnesses for you. Bless us, we pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, just to uh, give you a little background on this, um, I have to tell you a little bit about myself first. I am a... I, I have a weakness for fitness equipment, okay? I, I know that sounds strange, but um, as you know, I travel a lot. We, tr- we travel with a, a truck and a cargo trailer and a car top carrier. And space is so is so premium. We need all the, the space that we can for the amount of things that we carry. And it frustrates my wife, I think, at times, because I carry uh, my own, you know, dumbbells and, you know, uh, uh, all these, all these gadgets that I have supposedly to help me get more fit, okay? And the difficulty is that often when I travel with this, um, I end up becoming so busy during the course of whatever I'm doing that I end up neglecting to use it. There are some meetings when I never pick up any of the fitness equipment that I bring along with me. And what I've discovered is that in analyzing my own self, I've realized that these fitness companies, you know, that they sell all of these gadgets, they they don't sell fitness, they sell the promise of fitness. Isn't that right? That's what they capitalize on, that the person is envisioning that this is going to make them much stronger, much fitter, and so forth. This presentation today is the same. Uh, If you listen to it and you take the handout home, uh, it only promises the, 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 the possibility of being a better Bible student. The reality is that this presentation won't do anything for you unless you really incorporate the principles that we share into your own diligent Bible study. Amen? Okay, so why this title? Well, there's a Chinese proverb, and it says, if you give a man a fish, you feed him for a day. But if you teach a man to fish you feed him for a lifetime. And that's true. There are many people that come week after week to church and they're being given a fish. The problem is that if that supply dries up, their spiritual life dies, or if they move somewhere else and they don't feel like they're being spiritually fed, that ends up affecting their spiritual life. And really what God wants is he wants us to learn how to feed ourselves. Amen? This, this is underscored by two miracles in the Bible when you go to the gospel accounts, and you don't have to turn there, but when you go to the gospel accounts of Christ feeding the multitudes, you'll discover that in both of the accounts of Christ feeding the multitudes, you'll discover two things. Always, the order that, was, that the food was given in was always the same. It was Christ first, and then it was passed next to who? To the disciples. And from the disciples, it was then given to the? Multitude, isn't that right? Now, that underscores a very important spiritual point, and that is that as Christ's disciples, God wants us to receive the bread of life from Him. And as we receive the bread of life from Christ, we are to disseminate it and share it with others around us. Now, in my seminars and as I travel, I am constantly admonishing people to study the Bible. You know, one of the big points that we use in evangelism is we tell people, go back and study it for yourself. See if what we're saying is true. And as people examine, you know, different subjects that we present, they can see that it's biblical. We say, study the Bible for yourself, study the Bible for yourself. I've gotten to the point where I say it so much, and I've begun to hear something very familiar as I listen to the groups that I share these evangelistic presentations with, I often hear an uh, an undercurrent of people that are asking this question and they they ask simply, how do we study the Bible? You're, You're saying to us week after week, day after day, study the Bible for yourself, study the Bible for yourself. But how do we do that? How practically do we study the Bible for ourselves? So I began to think about this because the reality is that oftentimes you can say things, they become a cliche, and if you don't really think about it, you may sometimes assume that you know, but you really don't. And I've listened and I've read and I've done a little bit of research. What I'm sharing with you today is really the cumulative effort of several years of looking and listening to others and reading about what others have shared and, and, uh, and written. And really, a lot of these Principles that I'm sharing with you, I only share them if I have been able to reproduce it in my own personal studies. So, one of the first things that we have to be careful of, or one of the first things we have to be aware of, is that the message of Scripture is given largely to us in two broad categories. The message of Scripture can be given to us in two broad categories the literal and the allegorical. And when we look at the Bible, it's important to determine which of these two areas that we are looking at. And these two areas represent two extremes in Bible study. You have some people that want to allegorize the entire Bible. Nothing is literal. There are churches that have accepted this idea lock, stock, and barrel. Everything in the Bible is allegorical. It takes the church to interpret what is truth. There's the other extreme of looking at the Bible purely as literal, And I say this up front because as we go through different things today, uh, I'm trying to make it clear that as we study the Bible, we have to be careful to avoid these two extremes of allegorizing everything or literalizing everything. Now, there are two quotes that I want to share with you, and I think that these quotes will help uh, define the boundaries under which we uh, launch into our study today. Thomas Hartwell Horn, uh, he says... In his book, An Introduction to the Critical Study and Knowledge of the Holy Scriptures, he says, of any particular passage, notice these next four words. The most, what? Simple sense. sense. In other words, that which it most readily suggests, the most obvious, the most simple sense or that which most readily suggests itself to an attentive and intelligent reader possessing competent knowledge is in all probability the genuine sense or meaning. Now, some of you might be saying, "This is common sense," but you would be amazed as you listen to various preachers or expositors how often we look for the, fanc- the fanciful or the you know the just amazing incredulous interpretations of the Bible. The most simple sense is often the most accurate, the most uh, true to what the author intended. John Calvin, in his author and his in his introduction to the commentary on Romans, said this. It is the first business of an interpreter to let his author say what he does say instead of attributing to him what we think he ought to say. How often have you heard a sermon or maybe done a Bible study and people can put into it what they want to get out of it? Have you ever seen that before? You know, it's, it, it, there's a term for it. It's called eisegesis. It's when people project into a passage a meaning that is not really there. And I have to say that as I look back in my own life, the sermons that have had the greatest impact on me are those presentations where I could most clearly see what God was saying through me, to me, through that particular passage of Scripture, Not what the person explaining it wanted me to hear, but what the Bible was really saying. Now, when we look at the Bible, there is a term that I want to introduce to you, and this term is important because it's really the goal of what we're focusing on today, and that that word is exegesis. Now, this simply means that we're looking for the actual meaning of the passage based upon the historical and literary contexts. In other words, we want to know what did the Holy Spirit want conveyed through the writer in this particular passage, okay? That's exegesis, and that's our goal today as we study about how to learn to be more effective at Bible study. So, what can we do? What practical steps can we take to be more effective at extracting the meaning of a passage from Scripture. Here's a statement from the pen of Ellen White. She says, In daily study, the verse-by-verse method is often most helpful. Let the student take how many? One verse. Now, I have to be honest. When I, before I understood some of these things, uh, after I gave my heart to Christ, I, I'm a pretty fast reader, and I would wake up and I would have my morning worship And I could read several chapters in a setting. You know, if it was the Gospels, I could read several chapters. And then I would have prayer, I would go on my way. But you know what the problem was? After I was done, do you know how much I remembered? Almost nothing. You know, if someone asked me, what did you study? I couldn't tell you maybe a single thing that I had read that day. So she makes a very practical suggestion. Let the student take one verse and concentrate the mind on ascertaining the thought that God has put into that verse for him, and then dwell upon the thought until it becomes his own. Now, notice one passage thus studied until its significance is clear is of more value than the perusal of many chapters with no definite purpose in view and no positive instruction gained. So, if you want to take away more from your morning worship, more from your personal study of the Bible, it's not so much quantity that we should be interested in. Rather, it should be quality, okay? In other words, eat less but chew more. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, uh, truly, it can be said that in Bible study, less is often more because we will extract more of the uh, thoughts of God for us. This first part of the presentation today, I want to share some techniques That I feel will help you in going through single verses. And uh, this afternoon, what I'm gonna be covering is features. Um, So these are kind of different, but if you join us again this afternoon, you'll see why I separate them into these two categories. The first technique that I wanna share with you is meditation. And I wanna share what spiritual meditation is from the Christian standpoint. Merely to hear or to read the Word is not enough. He who desires to be profited by the Scriptures must meditate upon the truth that has been presented to him. By earnest attention, prayerful thought, he must learn the meaning of the words of truth and drink deep of the spirit of the holy oracles. Now, what I wanted to do is give you an example of how this would play out in a real study, okay? Now notice, if you notice in your handout, I highlighted the three things that underscore spiritual meditation. Number one is earnest attention. Pay attention to the details of the passage that you're looking at. Number two, prayerful thought. Number three, learning the meaning of the words of truth. Let's see if we can see what this would do to a well-known passage of Scripture. Now, most of us would know Matthew 6.33, isn't that right? But if you applied the principle of spiritual meditation, you would have to pay earnest attention to each of these words and learn the meaning of the words. Now, let's pause for a minute and let's think about the first word of this verse. Okay, Matthew 6.33. The first word is what? It's but. Now, I know most of us, we would skip over that. We would think, oh, you know, not a big deal. You know, the word but is a conjunction. Okay? And it implies it implies a contrast uh, between what has been before and what's coming after. Isn't that right? Now, I want you to think about what that implies because if the verse Matthew 6.33 started out and, what would be the difference? That would mean it was connecting an idea. Isn't that right? But it doesn't. It starts out what? But, you know what that implies? It implies that what Jesus is about to say is in contrast to what he has already said said. Isn't that right? Okay, so then you take the next word and you look at this word seek. So I think most people know that to seek means to look for something, right? But when you really think about this word seek, there are two kinds of, there are two times when a person seeks for something. Isn't that true? You seek for something that you've lost. Isn't that right? Or you seek for something that you never had. And when you think about this, that automatically lets us know that Jesus' words would really be given to two types of people. To those that had what Christ is telling them to look for but lost it, or those that never had it, and Christ is telling them to seek. Now, ver- the next word in this passage is ye. You know, Jesus is giving Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says ye, ye, it automatically tells us specifically who the audience is that Christ is addressing. Isn't that right? Because by saying ye, now, unlike other passages of Scripture, some are specifically, you know, meant for certain groups, this word ye indicates that the, the injunction given in Matthew 6 is general. It's for everyone. What does the word first tell us? What does first indicate? It indicates what? Order, priority. Isn't that Right? So what Jesus is telling us to look for is to take precedence, it's to be primary, it's to be before every other consideration. Jesus says, do this first. What is it that we're, we are to seek? Notice this expression, and I've lumped this together, the kingdom of God. I've lumped this together because really this expression indicates that Christ is talking about a monarchy. Isn't that right? Right? kingdom evokes the idea of a king and a domain. Isn't that true? Now, you know, that's important to understand because in a kingdom, when a king tells his subjects to do something, is it an option? No, not really, okay? And that's important to understand because what Christ is telling us in the phrase kingdom, it's giving us the idea of a king, a domain, and we know who the king is because it's the kingdom of who? God. So if you really think about it, what Christ is enjoining or what he's admonishing is that we make God the king of the domain of our heart. Isn't that true? Okay, that's what Christ is enjoining in this passage. Now, does it make sense that if Christ is the king of your heart, does it make sense that you would do what he says? Does that make sense? That's why the next part of the verse says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His what? Righteousness. Righteousness. What is righteousness? It's obedience to God's law. Isn't that right? Righteousness is obedience to God's law. So here is where we have this passage. Now, you know, I didn't go through the whole verse, but hopefully this practically illustrates what it means to meditate on a passage of Scripture. You know, if you really think about this, there are many passages in the Bible, we've probably memorized them, but if you really think about these words individually and what they contribute to the collective meaning of the passage, it can open up new ideas, deeper understanding. You know, notice the Lord's, uh, I'm sorry, the uh, shepherd's psalm doesn't begin, a Lord is my shepherd. It doesn't say that. It says what? The Lord. Okay? And you know, when you look at these verses, when you really pay attention, when you meditate upon each of these words, you find much more meaning than you might if you just superficially peruse these passages. Okay. Technique number two is defining words. We saw a little bit of, of this in the, the technique of meditation. But I want to illustrate this in three ways. If you have your handout, you'll notice. That uh, under definition, first of all, a biblical word can have a very different meaning than the same word used in our modern vernacular. Now, I want you to think about this in Philippians 3, verse 20. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Was Paul a ventriloquist? Is that what Paul was saying here? Philippians 3.20, his conversation was in heaven. What was Paul saying when he said, our conversation is in heaven? It's very simple. The word conversation in the Bible, when you look it up, this is the word that it's taken from, and notice that an alternate rendering of the same word, this word conversation can also be translated as what? Citizenship. Okay, notice that the word conversation in the Bible doesn't bear the same meaning as it might for our modern language. But you can't always go by this. Um, Here's an example. Let me see if I can… Okay. So here's another example. Draw nigh to God, and He will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Now, notice that if you look up this word purify in the Strong's, it simply means to sanctify. But it doesn't really contribute to the deeper meaning of the passage. So, what I'm gonna ask you to do is, I'm gonna ask you to open to to James chapter 4, verse 8. I'd like to ask you to notice something with me here. In James chapter 4, and look with me at verse 8, and I'm gonna put on the screen the definition of the word pure from the dictionary. Notice, the word pure means not mixed with anything, free from mixture or adulteration unmixed. Like, you know, if you go into the store, you'll find pure orange juice or pure honey, right? It's only a single ingredient, whereas you'll never see like, you know, pure cereal or pure spaghetti sauce. No, it doesn't say that. Why? Because those things are mixed with many other things to make that product. Isn't that right? Now, notice what James admonishes. He says to purify your heart. Well, the root word pure means to free from mixture, to be free of any kind of mixture. Okay, Now, why is this important? Because when you read James 4, verse 8, he says, Draw not to God, and he will draw not to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, ye what everybody? Double-minded. Why would he tell them to purify their hearts? Because they have a mixture of how many minds? Two minds. Okay? So here is where you can use a dictionary to perhaps enhance the understanding of Scripture. But there are also times when, as you study the Bible, there are biblical definitions that are more satisfying than even the concordance or maybe a dictionary. I like the account given in Matthew chapter 8, if you would turn there with me. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 8, our pioneers, um, specifically A.T. Jones, did a series of articles on faith, and he used Matthew 8, 8 as. Uh, one of the examples of what faith was Matthew chapter 8 verse 8 notice the centurion answered and said lord i am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof but speak the word only and my servant shall be healed now notice what Jesus said in verse 10 Jesus heard it he marveled and said to them that followed verily i say unto you i have not found so great what everybody faith, faith. no not in israel now notice this centurion makes a statement. He says, I, if you will speak the word, if you will speak the word only, my servant will be healed. And Jesus heard that and he said, I have not seen such great faith. Well, our pioneers uh, explained this and simply said that faith then, according to Christ, would be to take and believe that the word of God can do of itself exactly what it says it can do. Now, if you think about this, you won't find this definition in this, in this concordance. You won't find it in the dictionary. You know, faith is often uh, assimilated to like trust and, you know, belief and all these kinds of things. But when you look at the Bible's definition, it gives you a much more concrete understanding of what faith is. It is believing that God's Word can do exactly what it says it can do. And this is, of course, affirmed in many places in Scripture as well. Okay. Now let's look at Matthew chapter 8 quickly. Matthew chapter 8 verse 22. I just want to emphasize, I want to just highlight the fact that in the Bible, words that we commonly use may not convey the same meaning that they are being used in the Bible. Jesus said Matthew 8 verse 22, but Jesus said unto him, "Follow me and let the dead bury their dead." Now let's pause here for a moment. Do the two words dead here have the same meaning in Matthew 8:22, yes or no? No, one is describing a literal death. Isn't that right? What's the second one describing? Spiritual. Spiritual. Okay, you can see that, right? And in each of these, Romans 9, 6 says, they are not all Israel, which are of Israel. The word Israel in Scripture has a double meaning. There are two implied meanings. John 9, verse 39, Jesus talks about the Pharisees being blind. Was he talking about literal blindness? No, he was talking about spiritual blindness, okay? And then, of course, 1 Peter 3, verses 1 and 2. For sake of time, I'm just going to, kind of move on. Context. Now, let me, g- let me give you an illustration of this expression. If you heard a group of people say, say, say in their conversation, I love fishing, okay, what would it mean? Well, it would depend, wouldn't it? Because if you saw a group of people by the lake in a boat and they all had fishing poles in their hand, what would it mean if they said, I love fishing? That literally they love, you know, catching fish, right? But if you saw a group of pastors together and they were talking, and then one of them said, I love fishing, what were they talking about? Well, they might be talking about this, right? But more likely, more likely than not, they would probably be referring to fishing as a, an expression for what? Soul winning, right? Or if you saw a group of, of computer people together, okay, and they said, I love fishing, that could mean something totally different, isn't that right? okay. Okay, so you get the idea. Why am I sharing that with you? Because the context of what something is said in often determines what it means. Let me do an exercise with you, 1 Corinthians 6. And I'd like you to turn there and tell me, what is this passage often used when you hear it preached, uh, in, especially in an evangelistic setting? 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 uh, and 20. What do we usually associate this passage? The Bible says what? No, you not. That your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you are not your own. Now, let's pause right there. When you read this passage and you hear it in a public setting, in an evangelistic setting, what do most often, what do you most often hear it associated with? Health message. But you know what's interesting? When you read the verse before, when you read verse 18 and you see what Paul says here, he says, flee what? In the context of 1 Corinthians 6, is Paul even talking about health or, or, you know, eating healthy or living healthy? Is that what he's talking about at all? No, it's not. Now, it's not wrong to make the application, but keep in mind, Paul's intent in this passage is to help us understand the dangers of fornication and defiling yourself. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, this is an interesting one. Turn there with me, please. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 31. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 31, Paul says, I protest by a rejoicing which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die, how often? Daily. Daily. Now, when you hear this preached, how often do you hear it associated? When people talk about dying daily, what kind of death do they usually associate this with? The death to self. But if you really look at this, if you go to the previous verse, verse 30, He says, and why stand we in what? Jeopardy. When Paul said, I die daily, was he talking about dying to self? No. You go back and you read this. Paul was simply telling that in order for him to preach the gospel, every day he imperiled himself recognizing that he was driven to carry the message of Christ to the world. Okay? Let's go on. Matthew 22 Well, let's skip this one for sake of time. Come with me to Luke fifteen verse eleven, Luke chapter fifteen verse eleven, and I'd like you to notice this parable is well known. Luke fifteen verse eleven, and I've preached on this. Uh, Notice verse eleven, and it says, "And he and he said, a certain man had two sons." And uh, if you notice in the verse twelve, it says the younger one said to his father. Now, notice that two sons. The younger one says, you know, I want to go and I want to take all this money. Well, if you look at this parable and you just look at verse 11, it's easy to go off and just make all kinds of applications. But in reality, these parables that are given in Luke 15 all have something in common. The audience that Jesus was addressing was in mind when he gave these. Look with me at Luke 15, verse 1. And two. Then drew near unto him all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. Verse two. And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, This man receiveth sinners and eateth with them. Now, what two kinds of people were with Christ when he gave these parables? What groups of people? The publicans and the sinners, and who else? The Pharisees. And if you really think about this carefully, when Jesus said, A certain man had two sons, and notice he said, The younger son. Because in Scripture, the firstborn was always a symbol for who? Israel. Isn't that right? The firstborn, you know, God says, you know, Israel is my firstborn. So, it was a symbol for the Jewish nation. And, of course, then you have the younger son, the Gentiles, that were living, you know, these, these, this uh, godless lifestyle. And so, it's representative of these two classes. The older son, of course, representing the attitude of the Jews, and then the younger one being, of course, the Christ's depiction of the Gentiles and their acceptance of him for salvation. Okay, okay. now this one, uh, technique number four, is very important. The Bible is its own expositor. One passage will prove to be a key that will unlock other passages, and in this way, light will be shed upon the hidden meaning of the word. By comparing different texts, treating on the same subject, viewing their bearing on every side, the true meaning of the Scriptures will be made evident. Now, Matthew 7, 7, I'm sure you know this passage. Matthew 7, 7, is this a blank check? Now, what I'm going to do for sake of time, I'm going to ask one volunteer to find each of the subsequent passages, but I'm going to read Matthew 7, 7. Now, as I do this, I'm going to ask you this question. Matthew 7, 7, is this a blank check? In other words, when Jesus says, ask and it shall be given unto you. When Jesus says that, does that mean that if I ask for an expensive car, does that mean that God is going to answer that prayer? Wait, wait a minute, but Matthew 7 says that if we ask, it shall be what? Given. Given. Can someone read James 4 verse 3 out loud? Thank you. Now notice, James 4 tells us that when you ask You don't get why, because you're asking wrong, your heart's motive is wrong. Do you notice that? Can someone else read for us John 16, 23? Real quick, nice loud voice. Thank you. Now notice, if we ask, shall we always receive? Not if we ask wrong, not if we ask for our own selfish desires. And this verse tells us that we have to ask how? In Jesus' name. Okay? Okay? Someone read for us Mark eleven twenty four. 24. <coughs> Notice that not only do you need to ask, and you have to ask right, and you have to ask in Jesus' name, but you also have to believe. Isn't that right? You have to believe. You have to have faith. 1 John 5, 14. Notice you just don't have to ask, and ask right, and ask in Jesus' name, and believe, but you also have to ask according to God's what? will. So you're getting the picture, right? One verse is often not enough to gain God's, the whole picture of God's plan uh, of how He wants to deal with us. It's, it's more important for us to look at the whole of Scripture on a given passage. Uh, before we close, let's have a word of prayer and uh, let's finish. Father in heaven, we pray that you would make us better Bible students. Lord, I pray that these practical means might empower us to be more efficient students of the Bible that we might be better Christians. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.